Who are a guest with us, we welcome you to the President's class. We hope you enjoy the class. If you're in town visiting relatives, we hope you had a great time. We are going through the book of Matthew verse by verse, and we're now in Matthew chapter 14. And I'll catch you up to date. In the chapters just preceding 14, we see that the tide is turning against Jesus. And by that I mean the religious leaders who uh, examined Him and watched His ministry and His miracles have basically turned against Him and uh, they see Jesus as a threat. Because Jesus is preaching the kingdom of God and uh, the way He's preaching it doesn't fit in with their theology. And uh, whatever you're... You have to watch out when you're a preacher because everybody is an expert in religion. Now, if I had a problem, let's say, that needed uh, a medical problem, I'm certainly not an expert in in medicine. I'd go to a doctor, and whatever he told me, I'd probably listen and maybe get a second opinion, but I would consider him the expert. If I needed a lawyer, I would go to Drake Patterson or Lee Bartlett, and I would get their opinion. Uh, And if they gave me their opinion, I wouldn't contradict them and say, you don't know what you're talking about. Let me tell you what I think the Constitution's all about. Or if I needed to go, uh, my car broke down, i go to an auto mechanic, and he said, this is what the situation is. And I would at least accept their word. I would figure they're the experts. But when it comes to religion, we're all experts. Isn't that amazing? Uh, it doesn't matter what this person there says or that person there says. We have our own opinions about religious things. And so Jesus is God's authorized spokesperson. And he's coming, delivering a message called the kingdom of God, and it does not fit in with the beliefs of the religious leaders. He's saying something just a little different. And they know that he is drawing large crowds, and he is a threat to their power, so they've decided it's time for him to go. And they want Jesus dead. So there's a sense in which Jesus' life is in danger, but the masses are still with him. So we ended our study two weeks ago in chapter 13 and verse 57 where it says, so they were offended at him. uh, But Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in only one place. And that's his own country and in his own house. And uh, he wasn't able to do a lot of mighty works because of their unbelief. And so here... We see Matthew, or Jesus, calls, says that a prophet is not without honor except in one place, in his own country. Now we look at this other prophet, John the Baptist, and we see he falls into the same category. He gets no respect in the areas where he is preaching. So we're going to pick up at Matthew 14 and verses 1 and 2. I'm just going to read that, and then we're trying to make some sense out of it. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch, heard the report about Jesus and he said to his servants this is John the Baptist he's risen from the dead and therefore these powers are at work in him now the first person we were introduced to in verse 1 is Herod the Tetrarch now who in the world is Herod the Tetrarch and what's a Tetrarch this is not Herod the Great You need to understand that. Herod the Great was the king over all of Israel. He called himself the king of the Jews. 
He was a client king working for Rome, trying to keep the Jewish people in line. He's the one who built the temple, the great temple in Jerusalem. And he was the king at Jesus' birth. This Herod is his son. When Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided into four parts amongst four sons, and this son, known as Herod Antipas, is his youngest son, and he's been given rule over the northern section of Israel called Galilee and Perea, which are, is the region around the, the uh, Sea of Galilee in the north. Okay, so that's who this Herod is. He has a fourth of his father's kingdom, and he rules up north. Okay, That's why he's called a tetrarch. That's a technical term for a ruler over a section, not a ruler over an entire nation. So he receives reports. Notice in verse 1, when he heard the report about Jesus, he thinks Jesus might be John the Baptist, raised from the dead, come back to life. Well, that's sort of a strange idea, isn't it? Why would he think that? Because there are rumors spreading that Jesus is John the Baptist come back to life. Now, why in the world is that rumor? Well, if you just turn over to two chapters, like the chapter 16, remember when Jesus asked the disciples who the men say that I am? Remember that? And if you look at 1614, here's what they say. Well, some say you are John the Baptist. You see that? Some think you're Elijah. The Jews believed that before Messiah would come, that Elijah would precede him, be a forerunner. So notice there in verse 14, some say that you are John the Baptist. Well, who's one of the people that say that Jesus is John the Baptist? Herod the Tetrarch. Okay. So that's based on superstition. But there's a second reason that he thinks John, Jesus might be John the Baptist come back to life. It's because he's the one that killed John the Baptist. And he's got a guilty conscience. Did you ever have a guilty conscience? I remember getting into a fight when I was 12 years old on a corner in Baltimore, Maryland. And I, I learned at an early age, being a living in Baltimore, <laughs> that if you get into a fight, you have to throw the first punch or you're going to lose. I mean, that's just the, you just, when you live in a city, in the inner city like I did, you just learn that. And I hit this kid in his nose and he started bleeding. And it couldn't stop the bleeding. And I had just seen on television that if you could actually drive someone, I don't know if this is true, but it was on some television show, you could drive someone's nose into their brain and they'd be dead. Now, as a 12-year-old kid, see, Dr. Kenny laughed at that. But I know that's true because I'm smarter than a medical doctor. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> that's inner city now. And that wasn't true, obviously. <laughs> but I was scared. And you know what I did? Every day I looked in the obituary column. <laughs> see if he, if he had died. So, why did why was it? Because I had a guilty conscience. And here he has this guilty conscience and he hears about Jesus and he thinks this might be John the Baptist come back to life and now he has new powers. And he's scared to death. So verses 1 and 2 are in a sense are a summary. Okay, a summary. 
Now what happens in verses 3 onward, Matthew, the writer, gives us the details. Okay, so let's look at 3 and 4. For Herod, this is why he thinks what he thinks. Here are the details. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. So, verses 1 and 2 are a summary. Verses 3 onward are the details, and it's a flashback. Now, you want to know why he was afraid that this was John the Baptist? Here's the reason. Let's flash back. Yeah, this is an amazing thing. We're introduced to a new character here. Notice in verse 3, Herodias. And what has happened is that... Um, Herod Antipas marries his half-brother Philip's wife. And John the Baptist comes on the scene and he starts preaching against it. So you can't steal your, half, your brother's wife and marry your brother's wife. And so he preaches against this. And this is what gets John arrested. John, being a prophet, confronts the, religion, the political leaders of his day. They don't like what he says, and he gets arrested. So, this woman, and he's calling this guy to repent. This guy doesn't want to repent. He wants to do what he wants to do. Now, let's, let me tell you what I know about Herodias. First thing we know is that Herodias is married to Herod's half-brother, Philip. Okay? That means she is Herod's sister-in-law. We also know that she was the daughter of another brother. Which means that she was his niece. Yeah, this is a soap opera. Don't try to figure it out. Well, you could try to figure it out. Brother A, Philip, is married to a woman, Herodias. And the woman that Philip marries is his brother's daughter. So Philip marries his niece. Now Herod comes along, and he wants her too. And what we know is that uh, Herod had gone up to Rome for some meeting, and he sees his sister-in-law, Herodias, and he seduces her. And he wants to marry her. But he's got a problem. He's already married himself. And the woman that he's married to is the daughter of a king in the neighboring country. It was a political marriage. And so he's going to have to get rid of his, his wife if he's going to marry his sister-in-law. See, this is Peyton Place. And so he divorces his wife, daughter of the king, takes Herodias as his wife, steals her from his brother Philip. And when that happens, the girl's dad gets mad. The king gets mad in the neighboring country and he invades Galilee, Perea, and starts killing Herod's troops. Now just think about this. Rome hears about it, has to come to Herod's aid. It basically saves, saves it and saves the rest of his troops. But this web that this man has weaved has resulted in his soldiers dying, leaving widows and orphans 
All because this man wanted his brother's wife. And when John hears about all this stuff, he preaches against Herod and calls Herod to repent. Now we don't know whether uh, he preaches to Herod directly, whether he goes knocks on the castle door or the palace door, or whether he's in the streets preaching against him. But anyway, word gets back to Herod and he arrests John. Okay? Now on what basis is John preaching against this web? Well, let me show you. Go over to Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus chapter 18. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus chapter 18. Chapter 18, the first half of that chapter, in fact, more than half the chapter, deals with sexual morality. And it's all the laws of the Old Testament that condemn incest, all kinds of incestuous relationships. And you can read the chapter, and it is fascinating. We're going to just look at one verse. This is the verse that John the Baptist would have used to preach against Herod. Herod's marriage to his uh, sister-in-law. Look at 18.16. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You don't have any right to take your brother's wife. That's against the law. And if you did that, you were condemned to die under the Old Testament. John the Baptist confronts the king, calls him to repent. The king doesn't like it. And he arrests John the Baptist. So when you go back to Matthew chapter 4, 14, you discover that John the Baptist is arrested. It says in verse 3, Herod had laid hold of John, bound him, put him in prison. And look at this next phrase. <clears throat> Why did he do it? For the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. She got angry when she heard that John the Baptist was saying that relationship shouldn't go on because John had said to him, it's unlawful for you to have her. So Herodias instigates John the Baptist arrest. He arrests him. Uh, she wants John the Baptist put to death. She doesn't have the power herself to put him to death. Her husband's the one who's going to have to put him to death. And uh, she can't get him to do it. He's somewhat reluctant. We see in verse 5 why that is. It says that although he wanted to put him to death, he feared what? The multitude. Because they counted John as a prophet. So, she says, put him to death. And he said, well, honey, I don't know whether we should put him to death. You know, he's got a big support crowd out there. And if we do that, we might be have riots in the street. And we also know from Mark's gospel that Herod has actually gone down into the dungeon, the prison where John the Baptist is being held. And about once or twice a week, he gets into a dialogue with him, and they start getting into conversations. And he starts liking John the Baptist a little bit. So on the one hand, he wants to put him to death. On the other hand, he's having these conversations with John the Baptist, probably getting under conviction, probably really right at the point of being converted himself. And so he's between a rock and a hard place, and he doesn't know exactly what to do. So verse 6 says, But Herod, now we notice the word but. We have a contrast here. Sort of reluctant to put John to death, but, uh-oh, we know something's going to happen. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias 
danced before them, that would be the guest, the birthday party, and pleased Herod. Now we are introduced to a third personality, Herodias' daughter. Not Herod's daughter. Herodias' daughter. By the brother. But living in the palace with the king and the mother. The scene is a birthday party. Here the girl's name is not mentioned. The Bible does not mention the girl's name anywhere. But Josephus, the Jewish historian, says her name is Salome. And it's a birthday banquet. And there's a meal. And just in the typical form of a, of a Roman banquet, there's a reclining meal where the men got together and reclined on their left elbows and they ate and they did all that. And then after dinner entertainment. And the after dinner entertainment happens to be Salome. And she dances for them. It would be the equivalent, and it's a sensuous dance. It says she pleased him. It would be the equivalent in modern day birthday parties of a half-naked woman jumping out of a birthday cake. Everybody, ooh. Some male stag party. All smoking their cigars and drinking their bourbon, you know. And here she celebrating the birthday. Or, it would be like in Egypt... A birthday party with a belly dancer is the entertainment. And all the men, you know, looking upon this girl. Now the interesting thing is Jews didn't celebrate birthday parties. But this Jew did. He's a half-Jew, Scott Herod and Tempus. <clears throat> but Jews did not celebrate birthday parties. Only Romans celebrated the birthday parties. Jews saw that as sort of a form of idolatry. So this guy is following Roman customs. He has all of his male friends there in some sort of semicircle around the tables, all reclining. Women are in another room, sitting in chairs, doing whatever they do during the party. And uh, this girl dances, and it says she pleased him in verse, uh, into verse 6. And then look what it says in verse 7. Therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Mark says that, uh, he said, half my kingdom is yours, whatever you want. Heck, never, pro never promise to do anything where there's an open end and you don't know what they're going to ask for. He says, you can have whatever you want. He's so happy with us. You can have whatever you want. Ten silk dresses, you know. Two white Arabian horses. A beauty treatment at the special spa, you know, with the running waters and, you know, <laughs> somewhere. And that's what he's thinking. So look what it says. So she, verse 8, <coughs> having been prompted by her mother, she goes and says, Mom, stepdad says he's going to give me something. What should I do? She goes over to the next room. And the mother says, say, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. So it says that, uh, I, and I imagine, by the way, when the mother says, give me John the Baptist's head on the platter, the girl's heart must have sunk. She said, Dad, she said, Mom, I really wanted that, you know, those two Arabian horses. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what else would a girl want? She, she didn't want John the head, John's head on the platter. 
So she goes and tells the king and says, and the king was sorry. Uh, same word used to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he is sort of anguished over the fact that he's going to die. And this guy's heart just sinks, and he says, uh, he was sorry. Nevertheless, look at verse 9. Because, number one, of the oaths, and number two, because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So notice what changes his tune and forces him to kill John the Baptist. He made a promise in front of witnesses, and he doesn't want to lose face. Pride is what causes him to ask for the head of John the Baptist. And so it goes and says, and so he sent, and if Mark's gospel is much more elaborated upon, he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Mission accomplished. There is a, a very famous painting. There's several paintings of John the Baptist's head on a platter, but Carafaccio has a painting of John the Baptist's head on a platter. Uh, it was painted in 1607, and it was discovered in a private collection in 1959. And now it sits in the London Museum of Art. And I was looking at it last night, and uh, the picture is uh, John's head on a platter. And Salome is holding the platter. And then there's a slave who's got the hair of John the Baptist standing on the side. And then behind the platter is the mother, Herodias, looking down on the head. Salome is looking away. She can't look at the head. It's not what she really wanted. It's the mother who's looking down. And as I was looking at that picture, I said, one person's missing. Herod. And where's Herod? In my imagination, I see Herod out of the picture, but he's in front of the platter, and John the Baptist's eyes are open, and he's looking right into Herod's eyes. And Herod, now, according to verses 1 and 2, hears reports of Jesus, and he's, if you think that he had a guilty conscience when he killed John the Baptist, his guilty conscience has not subsided, and he thinks that maybe this is John the Baptist come back to life in the person of Jesus with new powers. <clears throat> so uh, when he hears this rumor, it scares him to death. Now, up until this point, Matthew has sort of given us an overview of John the Baptist's ministry uh, in bits and pieces. Now, I just want to show this to you. If you go back to Matthew 3, I think you'll have fun looking at this. He tells us the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. Matthew 3, 1. This is after Jesus has now grown. He's an adult. And then in verse chapter 3 and verse 1 of Matthew, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So there's the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. We know how he baptizes Jesus. Then in chapter 4, in verse 12, it says that 
That was Jesus heard that John had been put in prison. He departed to Galilee. Now notice that. Chapter 4 and verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. Notice John is in prison as far back as chapter 4 of Matthew. So he's in prison from chapter 4 all the way up to 14. Okay? So that's when he gets arrested, way back here. And Matthew just lets you know that, and that sort of launches Jesus' public ministry. And then in chapter 11, you'll remember this from a few weeks ago, and you look at verses 2 and 3. Matthew 11, verses 2 and 3. It says, And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples, and he said, Are you the coming one, or should we look for another? Remember when John starts having doubts in prison, whether Jesus is the Messiah or not. And so he sends a couple of his disciples there to find out. And Jesus says, Yes, the blind see, the deaf hear, people are being raised back from the dead. These are signs that the kingdom has arrived, now I'm the Messiah. And then, so John is in prison, so what's happening there? He's starting to have doubts in prison, even, even, uh, even John the Baptist. And then in chapter 14, verses 10 and 11, we see that his life comes to an end. And here's what it says. And so he sent and he had John the Baptist beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on the platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. So, we see this is the span of John the Baptist's life. Now, like Jesus, John the Baptist is preaching the kingdom of God. Both John and Jesus are preaching the kingdom of God in Herod's territory. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, neither of them are afraid to, to confront corruption. Where there's corruption, they confront it. Whether it's with religious leaders or political leaders, they act prophetically and they confront the corruption. They have no fear of man. They call for the leaders to repent, whether they repent or not. That's another story. And they have great crowds supporting them. Okay. So, And both of them end up executed. John has his head cut off and Jesus is crucified. Which is, uh, you see this parallel. Now look at verse 12 in Matthew 14. Then his disciples, that's John the Baptist's disciples, came, when they get the report that John's dead, they took away his body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Now Jesus hears that John the Baptist is dead, and John's disciples probably, we don't know this for certain, but they probably begin to follow Jesus. And then look at verse 13. When Jesus heard it. Now remember, John the Baptist is his cousin. Not only his comrade in arms when it comes to ministry. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by a boat to a deserted place by himself. And you get the sense that Jesus just has to get off by himself to grieve. And maybe because uh, Herod suspects that Jesus is John the Baptist come back to life, Jesus may have to get out of there just to, in order to save his own life right now. <laughs> so here we see this pattern in John the Baptist's life that ends in execution and Jesus' response. 
It's so interesting that in America, especially, we believe that when we obey God, everything's going to be all right. Oh, we're going to be blessed, you know, healthy, wealthy, and wise. In Bible times, when you obeyed God, <laughs> you did God's will, you usually lost your head. You ended up executed. Every apostle was martyred except for the apostle John, and he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. None of those people had a good ending. Because when you preach the true gospel, and this is the mistake we make, I think, in the Western world, we don't preach the true gospel. We just say, anybody here want to go to heaven? Say, I do. And yet that offends nobody. That doesn't ruffle any politician's feathers. Talk about heaven. Talk about salvation and the good old by and by. They'll let you do it as long as you want to do it. But when you confront the national leaders with their own corruption, and you call them to repent, then you're in trouble. It doesn't matter whether you are calling religious leaders and national leaders to repent who are dictators. It doesn't matter whether they're monarchs. It doesn't matter whether they're presidents. It doesn't matter whether they're governors. You call them to account, it's going to rub them the wrong way. And depending on the kind of government that you happen to be living in, you're going to suffer. If you do that in the United States, lo and behold, in a couple of weeks you might find that you're being audited by the IRS for no apparent reason. If you do that in uh, another kind of government, you may be arrested. You do that under uh, in Egypt right now? Where a man has declared himself the ultimate power. Morrissey says, I am the ultimate power in Egypt now. I've taken over. Even though he's voted in, now he's declaring himself to be a dictator. Go up to him and say, brother, you need to repent. Guess where your head will be? The kingdom of God is at hand. There's another king that you need to bow your knee to right now. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Guess what? Your head will be on a platter as well. You see? The righteous suffer. We just happen to live in a country where we don't experience the persecution the way most people throughout the world do today. In Yemen, they're still experiencing it, aren't they? Cuba, preach the gospel, see what happens to you. But in America, we don't quite feel it yet. The rewards that God offers us are not necessarily, you're not necessarily going to find them in this life. The blessings often are blessings that you don't count as blessings. Remember Jesus said, blessed are you when men revile you and what? Persecute you. Wait, wait a second. Blessed. Oh, isn't it horrible when men persecute? No. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you. For yours is the kingdom of God. See, the blessing is going to come in the resurrection. <laughs> when we're vindicated. When God says, okay, now all accounts are going to be settled. And when he, 
when the, the accounts are settled, then the righteous are vindicated, and the Herods and the Morses and the others are judged in righteousness and found wanting and are condemned. So blessed are they who are reviled and persecuted, Jesus says, not for doing something stupid, for my namesake, theirs is the kingdom of God. That's where we'll pick up next week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that uh, we have a gospel that does ruffle feathers because it's an authoritative word from you that calls people to account, calls them to bow the knee to another king. Oh, Lord, help those of us who are in positions of preaching and uh, proclaiming to be bold like John the Baptist having counted the cost, but not fearing men, and not fearing what men can do, up, do to us. Help us to heed the words of Jesus. Fear not him that can destroy body only, but fear him who can destroy body and soul in hell. Lord, help us to realize that the fear of you, respect for you, honor for you, is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Lord, help us to be faithful believers in a country that's teetering right now. Help us to realize that whatever the future holds, we must be faithful to this task. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.